I remember the first ever parents' evening that I led as a newly qualified teacher. I was terrified. But I particularly remember Curtis's mum. She sat down and began to tell me a tale about all the things Curtis was saying at home. The exact words he was using were my words. Phrases that I immediately recognised as things I'd said over and over again in our classroom. Such was my influence as a teacher over a five-year-old boy. Since then, I've had lots of parents' evenings, and many a time when a parent has sat down and said to me, well, this is what we hear at home. Hmm, that's not what Mrs. Platt said. That's always a bit of a worry, isn't it? Teachers have a massive influence over us. And I'm sure if we had time to talk to everybody here this morning, you could all mention a teacher who's particularly influenced you, however long ago your school days might have been. For me, it was Mrs. Fox, the music teacher at the girls' high school. She was a bit of a character. She was entertaining. She was very knowledgeable and passionate about her subject. She was firm but fair. You didn't mess about in her lessons. She was such an encourager. And she was really good at mixing the theory of music with having some fun practically. This morning, we're going to be exploring about Jesus as a teacher the most inspirational teacher to ever have walked this earth. And I want to think about how he taught, about what he taught, and also about what our response to that could be. He was such a great teacher that over 2,000 years later, we're still following his teachings we're still debating some of his meanings, and we're still learning from his example. In the passage Eileen just read, it's a passage where two teachers meet and discuss matters of faith. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court to which all questions of Jewish law were finally put. And of course, Jesus. Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi, a term of great respect, meaning great one. And it was used a lot for Jewish teachers of that time. Rabbis gathered a group of pupils or disciples around them and shared their particular interpretation of the laws. It was their custom to debate and question, to argue and challenge one another. And so many of the run-ins in the Bible between Jesus and the authorities were just this, not really that uncommon at that time. But if we look at Jesus' pedagogy, his teaching methods, if you like, perhaps we can begin to see why he stood out from the crowd. Well, firstly, Jesus' teachings had a freshness about them. 
he offered new insights into Old Testament truths. But it wasn't just a rehashing of what had gone before. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Part of his teaching, he demands that um, an unclean spirit leave someone. And the crowd there say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Secondly, Jesus corrected incorrect ways of understanding God's law, and he often expanded on them. He regularly challenged what had become the accepted way of thinking of something. For example, in John's Gospel, when Jesus is asked whether it was the blind man's sin or his parents' sin which has led to the man being blind, this is what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Similarly, when asked the question, who is my neighbour, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, shocking the expert of the law who'd asked the question. Thirdly, Jesus practised what he preached. Every experience, every conversation, every situation was a practical demonstration of his teachings. Perhaps none more so than the way in which he lived out his command to love your, na- sorry, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just think about his words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Fourthly, Jesus makes all his teaching relevant to those who were listening. He used everyday situations, common objects, well-known places in his storytelling, helping people to make connections between what he was saying and their lives. I suppose the most obvious examples would be many of the parables. The parable of the lost sheep, tells of God's love for the lost. The parable of the hidden treasure highlights just how precious the kingdom of heaven is, so precious that we need to give all we have to experience it. Fifthly, he didn't spoon-feed people. Often he left his listeners pondering, wondering what the answer or the meaning might be. There are a few parables which don't spell out their meaning, and Jesus was often questioning his disciples. Perhaps the most famous question appearing in Mark's Gospel, when he asked them, who do you say that I am? And lastly, he had high expectations of those who wanted to follow him. Jesus described his way as a narrow path. And in a well-known and often quoted passage from Luke, chapter 9, he says this. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So he taught new things. He corrected mistakes. He lived as an example. His teaching was relevant. He allowed people to work things out for themselves, and he had high expectations. These would all get big ticks on any Ofsted assessment sheet. But there's one thing that I haven't mentioned. One thing that elevates Jesus' teaching above anyone else's before or since. And that was his authority. As Nicodemus says in the reading we heard, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus has recognised that this rabbi has something about him, something more than the others. Just as did that congregation in the synagogue in Capernaum. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus' teaching is exceptional because he had God's authority, and that marked him out as something extra special. There's a saying, the mediocre teacher tells. The good teacher explains. The great teacher demonstrates. The best teacher inspires. And there's no denying Jesus as a teacher was truly inspiring. But it's what he taught, his curriculum, if you like, that continues to change the world. Most of Jesus' teaching was focused upon the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's not a phrase that's used much in John's gospel, but we did hear it in the reading earlier. Nicodemus appears to be spiritually hungry, hungry to see and know and understand more about the kingdom of God. There are a whole list of parables which liken something to the kingdom of God. We'd be here probably for a week if I tried to share all of those with you and talk about what they might mean. But we also hear that Jesus teaches that to enter the kingdom of God, we must be something like a child and that we must be born of the Spirit. And we learn that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
and we discover that status is topsy-turvy in the kingdom of God. And what better example of Jesus' teachings about the topsy-turvy, upside-down, countercultural nature of God's kingdom than the Sermon on the Mount? And in particular, the Beatitudes. Let me read from Matthew 5, 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These beatitudes paint a picture a picture of what human life and community begins to look like when people come under the rule and reign of God in his kingdom. We learn that if we belong to the kingdom of God, if we are under the kingship of God, we will be poor, with no power of our own to be what God intends us to be. We will be meek as we recognize our total dependence upon God. We will be merciful because we realize how much mercy God has bestowed on us. We will hunger and thirst for God and strive for purity. We will be people who long for peace, ourselves becoming instruments of that peace. God's kingdom is a place where there is peace and not violence. A place where there is inclusion instead of cliques for the elite. A place of sharing resources, not amassing wealth. A place where there is forgiveness rather than retribution. A place where those who inherit it must bear its fruit. The Beatitudes describe the character of God's kingdom. 
but they don't, thankfully, constitute conditions of salvation. Given that Jesus, Jesus says later on, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ouch. That's harsh, isn't it? Who could ever truly be pure of heart? If it wasn't for God's grace, no one would actually be blessed. The Beatitudes are not a judgment against all who fail to measure up. Instead, they are blessings for anyone who chooses to join God's kingdom as it comes near. God's grace, when we mess up, well, that's the good news, isn't it, this morning? When we get it wrong, when we ignore Jesus' inspirational teaching, when we make a mistake, or perhaps deliberately do the opposite, we fall into what Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, calls the safety net of absolute grace. I love that phrase. The safety net of absolute grace. Jesus teaches that God has high ideals, what you might call absolute standards. They're non-negotiable. But at the same time, God also offers absolute grace. And that, for me, is the crux of Jesus' revolutionary teaching. We have the high ideals, but we also have absolute grace. When I was a teacher, I might have been the best teacher going, not saying I was, but if I had no pupils, there wouldn't have been much point of me being there, would there? Jesus was the greatest teacher. His skill and authority was unsurpassed. His teachings about what living under the sovereignty of God should look like was both revolutionary and challenging. But all of that amounts to nothing if we, his pupils, his disciples, fail to respond. The parable that Rachel's just read to us comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. It's such a simple story, isn't it? So familiar to most of us, I would guess. One that's used in Sunday schools across the world. And yet, it's so very challenging. Both builders hear the word of truth. One chooses to put it into practice, taking extra effort to build his house on that truth. The other chooses, for whatever reason, not to respond to that truth and takes the easier option of building on something less substantial. But notice, both builders experience the same weather. Both houses are battered by rain and buffeted by wind. The wise builder is not immune from the storm. But the wise builder's house weathers that storm 
And unlike the foolish builder's house, is still standing when the storm abates. Following Jesus' teachings about how to live under the kingship of God is hard work and it's challenging. But it is a solid, reliable, good way to live and will ensure that we can stand secure when life's storms appear. This parable calls us, as Jesus' pupils, to respond to his amazing teaching. Firstly, we have to listen. Really listen. That could be through listening to sermons, could be through our Bible reading, or other Christian books that help us to understand what Jesus said and did. But listening to it all, not just picking and mixing from the bits that we like, all the bits that are familiar and reassuring. As well as listening, I think we need to ask. To be bold and brave enough to ask questions when we don't understand, or we're uncertain, or we disagree. Any teacher will tell you, the child that's asking the questions is the child that's learning, is taking their learning deeper. So if you have a question about something I've said, or you disagree with something I've said this morning, tell me, not now please, because that'll just scare me, tell me at the end. If there's something in your Bible study notes you don't understand, ring Richard, that's what I'm going to say, ring Richard and ask him. Or ask a friend from church. I think we do belong to a congregation here that can be honest about its doubts and questions. A family where we don't have to pretend we've got it all sorted. So as well as listening and asking, the third thing we need to do is do. Listening and asking comes from our heads. But proper, true learning only really happens when it affects how we live our lives. When the doing comes from our hearts. Hearts which are under the influence of God. Amen.